Welcome to Bibliophiles, a podcast for lit lovers. In today's episode, the Center for Lit team continues its quest to discover the great ideas in books of every description, ancient classics to fresh bestsellers, epic poems to bedtime stories. We're glad you came along. We hope you find this discussion as provocative and inspiring as the books themselves. Want to join the great conversation? Stay tuned. You've come to the right place. Welcome to Bibliophiles, everyone. Glad you all could make it. Adam Andrews with you once again. Lee Dog of the Center for Lit Crew, joined by the rest of the pack as usual. My <laughs> lovely wife, Missy. Hey. My daughter, Megan. Hi. My son, Ian. Well, hey. And his lovely wife, Emily. Hello. Good to be with you guys again. Mutual. <laughs> I'm sure. Uh, what? Mutual, I'm sure. A great topic on the schedule for today, a, res- a response, a conversational group response to a question from a devoted Bibliophiles listener having to do with the relevance of the literary approach to life to the reading of the Bible. We had a, like the Bible as literature? The Bible as literature, yeah. And it's odd that, that we, as a Center for Lit crew, haven't really discussed that yet in the history of bibliophiles, at least not per se, the Bible as literature. And I thought it'd be fun to talk about it today because, for most of us, those are two uh, areas of intellectual activity that are close to our hearts. On the one hand, the literary approach and literature in general, and on the other hand, the Bible, one of the key works of the Western tradition, obviously, and depending on your faith commitments and your spiritual commitments, the very word of God. The question being, for our consideration today, do those two interests of the Center for Lit Crew have bearing on the same thing? Can we use them together? Can we read the Bible as a work of literature and do the, do the techniques and interests that we bring to bear as literary people help us do it more effectively? Well, it seems like it's sort of a sticky subject because we don't want to do violence to a sacred text. And I think that for a lot of people, it could be a scary thing to read the Bible as literature because we don't want to apply any method to it that isn't readily apparent and thereby misuse it. In other words, at our own uh, some human reading into what is essentially a divine words, right? Right, which... I mean, the whole the whole point of reading well is to find the original meaning of the text, but I think that it's a it can be a tricky endeavor. Huh. Except the Lord used language, right? It is written. It's written. It's literature. What do you mean it's literature? I mean, I think what Emily's saying is that it's literature in the sense that it's words on a page, but is it literature in the sen- in the same way that Shakespeare or Dostoevsky are literature? And, and is it, hmm. is it, can you apply the same techniques of reading and understanding to the scriptures and not do violence to their divine or spiritual meaning? Well, I think you have to apply a lot of the same techniques or you do do violence to your reading what do you because, mean? well, if you look at the different books of the Bible, um, they're, they're not all the same. Like some of them are history books. Some of them are works of poetry, Right. right? You get wisdom literature. You've got letters. You've got law, books of law and mm-hmm. prophecy, um, parables. You can't read a parable in the same way that you read a history mm. or law. 
And you certainly can't read history like you read, for example, poetry. Right. In order to read poetry, you have to understand a little bit about literary devices, poetic devices that authors use to communicate. Um, you got to understand the difference between, for example, figurative or implicit meaning mm -hmm. and literal meaning, or you make a lot of mistakes. So in other words, at least one principle of literary analysis applies directly to reading the Bible, which is an acknowledgement of the differences between genres. Absolutely. You have to locate yourself within a genre. Okay, what genre am I reading right now? What is it that I'm looking at? Am I looking at apples or oranges? History <laughs> right? or poetry. And, you know, it's a given. It's the word of God. Fair enough. That's certainly true. And those of us who are believers um, acknowledge that very readily. Yeah. But now... Given that it's the word of God, how is he choosing to speak to us here in this book? In other words, through what genres, yes. first of all? Did he come to us in this word? Is it, is it a letter? Did he come to us through Paul writing a letter to the Corinthians? Or did he come to us through the proverbist hmm. or through the poet? How did he come to us this time? How did he present his word to us mm -hmm. in this um, iteration? Mm -hmm. Hmm. So it's very important to first consider the genre, or you can really make a lot of mistakes hmm. right out the gate. It seems to me, though, that there are a couple um, a couple principles of good reading that might be well applied to the Bible even more broadly than that, though. There are two steps to understanding any work of literature. One is reading all of the work of literature, reading it in its totality, listening to the author before you ever enter into the conversation yourself. And the second step is analyzing, understanding what the author has said and deciding whether or not you understand, agree, can have the conversation with him. And I think both of those steps are appropriate, even when reading the Bible, and maybe even the point of it being written down, that we can understand it and analyze and have a discussion. And that thing that you were saying about genre would be part of that second half, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. You're talking about um, reading contextually, right? which is, um, I think, something that we need to remember. Because so oftentimes we get together in a Bible study and we share our verses back and forth. Mm. Um, oftentimes those verses uh, are so utterly abstract and removed from their original location within the larger uh, work of literature that they come from that we don't even, even remember what they were originally referring to. Is that what you mean, Megan, when you say the fr a first broad principle is to read all of something? Is that kind of what you were after to be able to put its parts in the context of the whole? I don't know. I'm still trying to get my mind around it because, Mom, I think your point is a good one, that we need to understand the genre of the work and read with our minds awake and alive and read actively, as you would say, I think. Mm -hmm. But um, one of the things that I think is, is critical to good reading is just reading with an open mind, first and foremost, before I'm trying to pigeonhole the document into a particular genre even, reading the story from beginning to end, mm. which per with particular books of the Bible, I think is really important. And difficult. Before you analyze, and it's difficult. He it's says, a, thinking of Leviticus. Right, exactly. Hard to get from beginning to end of that one. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. So already then, right off the top of our heads, at least three basic principles that we would immediately apply to a work by William Shakespeare or a work by Dostoevsky seem to apply just as readily to the book of Leviticus. So Emily, are we, are, are you answered then? Does, is this, uh, do we, do we run afoul of that warning or that caution that you sort of began with? Oh, I, yes, I agree with everything that was said. I do think that more is at stake probably than in reading Dostoevsky, mm. but <laughs> I think the same principles apply. Hmm. That's an interesting idea. The same principles apply. 
Granted, however, more is at stake. <laughs> yeah, that's, I think that's, yeah, that's well said. Because we're talking about the word of God, not just the word of a man. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, and, and yeah, and, and maybe even uh, to a reader who doesn't uh, share a belief in the divine origin of the text, it's hard to argue with the fact that it's without a doubt the most influential text in the Western tradition. So more is at stake, even in the sense that this is the bedrock of our culture. Oh, yeah. I had a teacher. Um, I went to public school when I was um, K through 12. And I had a high school teacher that said, if you have never read the Bible, there are huge portions of classic literature that will mean nothing to you. Mm-hmm. You won't be able to make heads or tails of it, it because they're allusions mm-hmm. to and treatments of ideas that find their origin in the scriptures. Mm-hmm. So if you don't know the scriptures, there's a lot of Western literature that you won't really be able to enter into. Mm. It's absolutely imperative to be versed in the scriptures, to read Western literature with understanding. Mm-hmm. And the, the question that's, that's sort of preoccupying me today is, does it work the same way back the other direction? And that, in other words, the question before us today is kind of not, does a knowledge of the scriptures help us understand the Western literary tradition, but does a familiarity with the techniques of the Western literary tradition help us understand the scriptures? Does it help us read the Bible more effectively? Look, good reading is good reading, and bad reading is bad reading, no matter what you're reading, right? Yeah. So when you're reading the Bible, you have to read well, and all of the techniques of good reading apply. Hmm. Lewis, C.S. Lewis, one of my favorites. One um, of our favorites. Yes, he spoke to this idea in his Reflections on the Psalms. He said this, There is a sense in which the Bible, since it is, after all, literature, cannot properly be read except as literature and the different parts of it as the different sorts of literature they are. So Lewis, too, acknowledged the fact that we have to consider what we're reading, mm-hmm. and we have to apply all that we've learned about how to be a good reader, how to read well, to whatever it is we're sitting down to understand. Mm. And the Bible is one of those somethings. Mm-hmm. That is very interesting. Encouraging to a guy like me who wants to approach every book with, as a you know, from a literary uh, perspective and go ahead and be a self-conscious reader, an applier of the techniques of good reading. If this is true, I'm encouraged to go ahead and do that boldly when I approach the the Bible. Yes? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. There are some great tools out there to help you learn to do this. Um, Leland Riken, who is a professor at Wheaton College, uh, spent a lot of his career uh, teaching the Bible as literature mm-hmm. and coming up with tools to help people read it that way. And he actually developed the Literary Study Bible, which is an ESV version of the uh, English, standard, uh, English version. standard version of the Bible. And each section or each section, each book of the Bible begins with a section that speaks to things like um, literary devices that are used within it and what genre you're looking at, whether it's a history or poetry or whatever. And um, when he's when he treats parables and things that would be considered um, fiction within Mm -hmm. the scriptures. Like when Jesus tells a parable, he's telling a fictional story in order to amplify on a theme or an idea. Um, He will treat those elements as we would treat any fiction Mm -hmm. and look for, uh, kind of do a little structural analysis of it. Um, It's very useful. It's a great little study aid. Leland Riken's what literary study Bible? Mm -hmm. Is that what it's called? And he's written some other um, books about it that you can look up do a little Amazon search and find the titles yourselves. But um, he's done a lot of work in that 
in that particular field. I, I'm sort of put in mind, given the way this discussion has gone so far, of some of the specific categories of literary analysis that we are always on about at Center for Lit and, and wondering what you guys would say to how these apply to the scripture specifically. For example, one of the things we talk about all the time is the importance of context in interpreting a work of literature. So if you're reading a work by William Shakespeare, the context of the late 16th, early 17th centuries, Elizabethan England is important. We often talk about the role of the monarchy and the changing role of the monarchy during this period and the relationship between the monarch and the playwright or the monarch and the actor or whatever. And that we, we talk about how that has bearing on the reading of Shakespeare. It would seem obvious that this, this principle would apply more or less directly to the reading of the scriptures as well. Yes. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that's fascinating to me about this, so this is, a, I had the pleasure of sitting under a professor at college who, as a professor of, of literature, would take up the Bible as a piece of literature um, in the summers, not as a semester long course, but as sort of a, a, a one credit summer session um, called Biblical Narrative, appropriately enough. And uh, his project was basically to answer this question for a sort of long form with the help of a collection of books that he had that he had sort of cobbled together. And the thing that interested me about it was that question of context that, that you're talking about is so far flung and difficult when we approach particularly big chunks of the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Um, this book has been around a long, long time. And <laughs> you mean the Old Testament? That any of, yeah, the Old Testament. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what I mean. It's been around a long time. And the idea that any of us can actually get inside the head of the guy writing it the the actual pen or the hand that was holding the pen that wrote all of these things is really difficult because we're so far removed in a cultural sense yeah. from what was actually going on there. And this professor's answer to that question was actually, it's not that hard to go back that far. And the way that you get to that context is through formal analysis. Hmm. And what he meant by formal analysis was something really specific. So at Center for Lit, we talk about here all the time, we talk about symbolism, we talk about um uh, motifs and imagery, right? These different ways that we can look at a story and identify things the author is using to represent other things. And based on our knowledge of what he's mentioning, we know some things about the other stuff that he's talking about. Because an example I like to give is if we describe a field as an ocean of grain, we know some things about the field, right? Yeah. Namely that it's vast, that it's rolling, and there's yep. constant movement involved. Yep. Why do we know those things? Well, because we know what an ocean is like, right? Right. So essentially, this professor's uh, premise in teaching the class was that if we look really carefully at the structure of these stories, in essence, just like looking at a novel for symbolism, we can see authors repeating themselves in particular ways. They Mm. organize the structure of, say, a parable the same way every single time. And if we learn how to notice those structural elements, the ideas that they're trying to meet to communicate become a lot clearer to us. Mm. A great example of this would be um, the idea of exile and return, right? As you, as you think back over the old Testament, the children of Israel are constantly being exiled from someplace into someplace else, right? In, in some senses, the broad narrative of their culture is they serve a God who is constantly faithful and he'd have to be because they're always in exile. Right. Right. right? And so if we, we know that about these people, we can see that happening and authors using that idea of exile and return in the faithfulness of God 
in individual narratives to help us understand what's going on in the minds of the characters. Mm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So in the same way that you say a field is like an ocean of grain, you see, you see authors using the motif of exile and return to make something, make some specific comment about a particular point because right. the notion of exile and return is already familiar to his readers. Is that the idea? Exactly. The Israelites and, and the, the Hebrews as a people understand that the narrative of the culture going back on into time immemorial is faithlessness met by faithfulness from God. Mm -hmm. And so they're drug off into slavery and the Lord brings them back out of circumstances they consider to be irrevocably horrible. Mm. Right. And, and so the authors can use that to say things about the individual characters. So take the story of Jacob and Esau, for example, we see the theft of a birthright, right? Mm -hmm. The younger brother has usurped the position of the older brother, at which point younger brother becomes terrified and flees right into exile in the house of Laban. Mm -hmm. And he remains there for 14 years, fearful of being killed essentially by his brother of retribution of some kind. And when he's finally driven back into his family, reconciliation occurs in a fashion that he himself doesn't really expect, right? His brother doesn't respond by saying, you took my birthright and now I'm here to punish you. His brother responds by an act of the Lord by saying, I'm so glad that you're here. I've missed you. And there's this, there's this beautiful scene. Wow. So we know some things about Jacob, don't we? We know that he was faithless and mm -hmm. that he fled because he didn't trust the Lord, just like the people of Israel didn't trust the Lord. Mm. And we can also interpret the reconciliation as an act of God, mm -hmm. not an act of beneficence on the, on the mm. part of his brother, because that's how God always treats his people in the Old Testament. Wow. That, uh, as you're talking about that, as an example, right, correct me if I'm wrong here, an example of a recurring literary motif in the Old Testament, I am yeah. reminded of the New Testament parable of the prodigal son, mm -hmm. which uh, sounds almost like a redo of... Jacob's return to Esau, which I had never seen before. I never thought about that parallel, but it's probably the case if you're right, that listeners to that parable the first time, having been done their lessons as children would be familiar with this theme of exile and return and see in exactly. the parable, among other things, probably they would see in the parable, the faithlessness of the prodigal son and the corresponding faithfulness of the father. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly right. And, um, and it's the, I think the thing that my professor would have stressed is that it's the same. It's exactly the same kind of reading. You're still on the lookout for repetition. And like mom was saying a second ago, you're on the lookout for amplification, mm -hmm. right? You're, you're looking for something that an author goes along and he says, and then he says it again, but a little bit bigger. And then he says it again, but a little bit bigger to draw your attention to some central idea. Mm. It's just that the more you read those things, there's a list of devices that are particular to biblical stories mm -hmm. and that this particular school of authors use that nobody else really uses anymore. And mm -hmm. so it feels really foreign, but once you've got a handle on some of those basic motifs, biblical literature becomes really interesting. And um, I think maybe my favorite example, I'm sorry to monologue. No, here, no, this is interesting. Fascinating. Um, I think my favorite example is the story of Ruth, right? Not very long, just a few chapters. Um, and everybody probably knows the story of Ruth, right? She's a, she's a Moabitess, right? She's a foreigner to <laughs> the Hebrews. She is. That's what it's called in the Bible. You want to read it to you from the Bible? Yeah, she's from Moab. From she's a woman from Moab, a Moabitess. She is, she's from Moab. Okay, continue. <laughs> <laughs> in any case, we all think of the story of Ruth, I'll bet you, as a story about Ruth primarily, 
Right? Uh, it's a story I about do. her faithfulness <laughs> to her mother-in-law. Here's the thing. As you, knowing a little bit about biblical literature, read along looking for those kinds of signposts I was talking about a second ago. We'll just use the exile and return one because it's in this story as well. As you read along looking for those signposts, it becomes really, really clear that Ruth is not the main character of her own story. In really? fact, there are dueling main characters, Sweet. and the dueling main characters are Naomi, her mother-in-law, and God. Hmm. We, we know this in a couple of ways, and I'll, I'll make this as brief as I can, but in the beginning of the book of Ruth, all of the characters are defined by their relationship to Naomi, including Ruth's husband, right, who is taken from Ruth at a young age, right? He dies. That's the whole premise of the book is that all of the men associated with Naomi and Ruth have died. But even in the, in the scene where the author tells us that they've died, he doesn't say Ruth's husband was taken from Ruth. He says, Naomi lost all of the men in her life, right? Naomi lost her sons. Naomi lost her, her husband. Wow. And from that point on, all of the characters are defined by and introduced by their relationship to Naomi. So that's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's an initial indicator that maybe she's the one we're supposed to be paying attention to. Hmm. Right? Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. And then a couple of pages later, after she's told these girls to go back, right, she says, um, Let's see, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read you this passage. She says, return home, my daughters. This is Naomi talking to her daughters-in-law. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home. I am too old to have another husband. Look, even if I thought there was still hope for me, if I had a husband tonight, then gave birth <laughs> to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. Okay, wow. so this is, this is pretty simple reading, right? Who is the point of the story in Naomi's mind? Well, Naomi, Naomi is. Obvi. Naomi is, right? She's looking at two bereaved women who have lost their husbands, whose security in the world is gone, and saying, I am the point here. God has been more bitter to me than he has been to you. So this is, a, this is another instance in which the, um, the author of this biblical narrative is giving us some hints. Here's the final one that really clinches it for me. This is before the end of chapter one. So the reason that Naomi and Ruth are fleeing, by the way, from where they are in, in Moab is that there's a famine and they're going back home because there's food there, which makes this whole thing really ironic, right? They show up in town and everyone says, oh my goodness, Naomi's back. And she says, don't call me Naomi, which by the way means quite literally delighted or my delight. Don't call me delighted, she told them. Call me Mara, which means bitterness, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, by which she means I went away with a husband, right? But right. the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me and brought misfortune upon me. Okay, so let's think about this for 10 seconds. What about this exile and return stuff, right? This is the way the Israelites look at themselves. Mm -hmm. This is the way the Hebrews look at themselves. They're constantly on the lookout for the faithfulness of God as interpreted by narratives of exile and return. So here, Naomi has married and gone away from her people, right? She's been living in Moab. Now she's coming home. She's coming home, presumably, to a community full of people who know her name and who've missed her. Right. What does she immediately do because of her bitterness? She exiles herself. Hmm. Don't call me by the name you know me by. 
right? I've taken a new identity, and my identity is bitterness. Here, even though I'm fleeing a famine to a land that has food, I am empty, and that is my interpretation of my life. Hmm. She's gone into exile. Hmm. So then the, the story of Ruth takes place, right? She meets Boaz and ends up getting married, and at the very end of the story, we're given more evidence that what we've just witnessed and what we're supposed to interpret this whole narrative as is the faithfulness of God to Naomi. Because in the end, it says, Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. Then he went to her and the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, <laughs> praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age for your daughter, uh, wife, mother, all the things that we could have been saying, <laughs> saying about Ruth aren't said here for your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. And then just so we don't miss it, the author goes on, Naomi took the child, laid him in her lap and cared for him. And the women living there said, Naomi has a son. Holy smoke. I never Whoa. even saw that before. That's wild. Hmm. So the so I guess go ahead, see, there is that, that narrative of exile and return back again, right? If we know to look for it, what we see is Naomi's own personality. And here's the way that the, that the exile and return motif lets us know some things about our character, right? I mean, because the stuff she says isn't untrue. The Lord has taken away her husband and her two sons. Right. What's more, in this particular period of time, a woman's whole security in her culture was her husband and her sons. Yeah. Right. That's why the whole idea of a kinsman redeemer is important. Yeah. And so she's not wrong in her assessment of her situation, but her attitude is so clear when we look at this exile and return stuff, rather than being grateful for the fact that Ruth has stayed with her, mm -hmm. rather than being grateful that people remember her name, she changes it immediately upon returning home and refuses to be comforted. Mm. And in the end, what the Lord uses is something she didn't figure she could expect because what's her idea of security? Husband. Husband. Right? I'm too old to have a husband. Even if I had one right now, I still probably couldn't conceive. You know, all of this is based in her idea of what security is. And the Lord comes in at the end of the story in the return and draws her back in the fold uh. by some means she doesn't expect. Mm. Right. Mm. By by providing for her using her daughter-in-law instead of using she herself. Mm. Well, and also her understanding, not just of what security is, but of what posterity is. Right. Giving her a name that lives mm. mm -hmm. him giving her a name. And incidentally, um, it was Obed that was born and he was um, in the lineage of Jesus, historically speaking. Yes. Right? David's mm. great grandfather. King so David's great grandfather. that prayer that the woman prayed for her at the end, that the Lord would make his name great. He certainly did. Mm. Yeah. So you can see exactly what you're saying here about the motifs and the tropes and also the types and the shadows, right? Because this little right. story becomes a kind of shadow that is eventually fulfilled in the New Testament, the ultimate well, the, kinsman redeemer. The thing redeemer. that's beautiful about it is that, is that um, the, the more you pay attention to something like that, it, it, it is truly everywhere. These kinds of type scenes are everywhere. And it may it makes reading the process of reading the Bible not only one of engaging with uh, with a spiritual text and an, and an efficacious one, if you ask me, mm -hmm. but also it makes it like we talk about the reading of literature around here. It's interacting with real people, yeah. no matter how far away you're separated from the, from them, right? And here's the the best part about it is that not only are you watching the personal growth of of the individuals that made up the Hebrew community of faith, but you're also watching 
the entire Bible turn into a carefully crafted story about the character of God and how he deals with his people. Mm. Yes, the nation and... of Israel is is a person that he is dealing with. And mm. as you read through the Old Testament and get to the New Testament, the nation of Israel becomes the church. And mm -hmm. only through that formal analysis do you get a sense of the tradition that, that that's participating in, I think. Mm -hmm. And since you're looking at works not just of literature, not, not necessarily um, most of the time in the scriptures, you're not necessarily looking even at fiction, but you're looking at history, um, those stories are living stories that, that find their fulfillment in history, in real time. So you can see God writing the story of history throughout the centuries as well mm -hmm. with purpose. So ultimately what we're saying is, in so much as the Lord is the author of the living word and is, he even calls himself the word, Jesus is the word, um, he's kind of woven tropes that are important to him into the history of the world. And he's made sure we don't miss them because they keep coming back around again, over and over again. We get these types and shadows that prefigure Christ himself. Mm -hmm. And the story of redemption told over and over and over again so that we're sure not to miss it at the pivotal moment in history. I guess the question is, as Ian seems to be suggesting, uh, does reading in a literarily self-conscious way help us not miss it? Well, I think he's demonstrated yeah, that Yeah, it seems like to me too. One, one thing that came up in your uh, this brief discussion, Ian, is that a very simple question that we're always teaching parents and teachers and students to ask of the literature that they read unlocks this whole interpretation of the book of Ruth, which is who is the protagonist of this story? Who's the main character? Right. And if, if you don't start with that question, if you, or if you get a, a different answer to that question, you end up in a different place in terms of understanding what it's, what it's trying to say. Would you not agree? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we ask that question when we're teaching uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein or when we're, you know, when we're teaching uh, books to grade schoolers and junior high kids, uh, pay attention to mm -hmm. who the protagonist is and make sure that you understand a, them. Understand that answer to that question Properly before you start the interpreting the story. Who are they? What do they want? Why can't they have it? Yeah, and it, it seems like Naomi. If if you look at Naomi as the protagonist mm -hmm. of that story, uh, one of the reasons she can't have what she wants is she keeps she prefer to live in exile. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Right. Yeah. So that's one of the structural elements that I'm always thinking about is how do, how do we uh, understand the context of a work of literature? It seems to me, Ian, that you've demonstrated that understanding the literary context of a work of biblical literature can be really helpful in reading it well. And I think probably in not only, not only can you do that and not run afoul of mishandling a, a spiritual text, but perhaps doing that will allow you to handle it correctly more often. Mm -hmm. It's actually a safeguard, mm -hmm. wouldn't you say? Yeah, I think so. Um, uh, one of the things that I keep sort of drawing a correlation to in my mind is um, we talk about reading Homer a lot. Homer's a we're we're big fans of Homer in the in the uh, classical education world, mm -hmm. and we're all pretty comfortable with the idea that. Well, we well we know a set of things about Homer, right? We know that he that it was an oral tradition that was passed down from person to person, and that he did most of this from memory and out loud. And we look at all of these devices that he uses to move himself along through the story. The fact that he has different names for each of the characters based on where they are in their narrative and that sort of thing, 
Um, and we interpret all of those correctly. And I don't think that um, we are as aware of those same sets of markers that occur in biblical texts. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's kind of a mystery to me that we feel that we can come to a super deep understanding of what we're reading. Mm. I mean, this is the kind of, the, maybe the way to put it is this is the common courtesy we offer to every other author on the planet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Yep. Why aren't we offering it to this one? Yeah. Um, so anyway, if, if you, if you listeners are interested, um, there's a set of books that are, well, just really, really fun to read mostly and fascinating, but um, there's a, they're written by a man named uh, Robert Alter, um, who's a, professor of Hebrew and of comparative literature at the University of California, Berkeley. Um, He's been there since I think, oh, 1967 or so. Um, And he is, he has been heavily involved in biblical studies and has been honored by the Jewish community of scholars um, multiple times for his translations of the Hebrew Bible. And what he does is cross-references his translations with um, the giant volume that exists of rabbinic texts, right? Basically, um, there's a whole canon of interpretations of, strip, of scripture and extrapolations from scripture and applications of scripture to different ideas and different stories um, by rabbis over the centuries. And he's really familiar with all of that as a Hebrew scholar. And so he seeks to do exactly what I did with the book of Ruth just now, um, but do it for the entire Old Testament eventually. And so, so far he's done the David story, which is a translation with commentary of First and Second Samuel, and then he's done the five books of Moses and the book of Psalms, the book of Genesis, and the wisdom literature, hmm. um, Job, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes. And what you'll get is, first of all, his translation is beautiful and poetic. And so as you're reading, it's just a really enjoyable experience of reading scripture. But then his footnotes are going to pull in everything he knows about rabbinic literature and say, by the way, that's why they said it this way about this character, or this is a story that applies to this particular guy and should color the way that you see him. Um, so anyway, if you're interested, Robert Alter is a, mm. is a great resource. That is fascinating. One of the things that I thought of when you were talking, Ian, is that uh, you, you, I think you might have said something a couple of minutes ago about the fact that the, the literary devices that are used by the authors of biblical texts are, are strange to us because of being so old or maybe being from a, from an essentially non-Western culture or something like that. And uh, they're no less literary for being strange, but they might be less obvious to us because we're not accustomed to looking for them. Or maybe we associate the strangeness of the scriptures with the voice of God rather than the voice of man. And so we don't apply a literary reading to it because as Emily was suggesting at the beginning of the hour, who are we to go messing with the voice of God, breaking down the voice right. of God into its component parts, which when really what might be going on is that God in writing the old Testament, speaking through human writers of the ancient world, allowed them to use their own cultural and literary devices to express his words in the same way that well, we would that, say, oh, go ahead, Emily. Maybe the misunderstanding is that you're breaking it apart in the first place, even with any other piece of literature, um, if you're respecting the text, you're not breaking it apart. You're piecing everything together as a whole. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. you're looking to understand, not to read into it, but to read what is there. Yeah. To acknowledge the artistry and the craftsmanship of the work that which, already exists. Which goes along with what you said a minute ago about genres. The author of the Psalms is self-consciously writing poetry and hymnody mm-hmm. or whatever, rather than 
history. And no matter what culture you're writing from, that's going to require a different set of literary devices and literary techniques. Yeah, there's a tradition that you're writing in um, when you write a particular type of a psalm. You know, yeah. Um, you can't read the imprecatory psalms in the same ways that you read um, just praises. Yeah. You know? So anyway, yeah, I think that's really good to keep in mind. So a lot of contextual analysis is important in terms of history and the continuity, right, of the tradition that Ian was talking about. Also, um, in terms of genre, literary genre, and syntactical context. That is, you know, we talked for a minute about taking a verse completely out of context. It can lose its fundamental meaning Mm -hmm. when it's in isolation. So always considering what came before, what comes after the verse's place in the whole Mm -hmm. in order to understand its meaning. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think the, the main point, what I'm hearing over and over again, is that we're reading to understand, just like when we read anything. And there were human intermediaries. This is the word of God, but God spoke through man, and he used language to do it. He communicated with language and story and things like that. Well, speaking of story, that brings up the question of structure. What about, we've talked about context for a little bit, a major literary concept that we use to interpret human works. And we seems like that's applicable to reading the Bible as well. Is the idea of structure equally as applicable? I mean, can we take uh, a literary understanding of what the structure of a story does for us and apply it to the Bible? What say you guys? Well, I think Ian just did that in large part. He basically charted the plot of the book of Ruth, identifying the main character, watching the, the story's conflict grow to a pivotal moment, and then figuring out what thematic ideas um, came out of it. And he's noticing that those themes and ideas are consistent with the tradition. And he's picking up particular um, elements of the story in order to highlight that for us. But really, it's a structural analysis with an eye to tradition that he was doing for us. I think you could do exactly the same thing, frankly, um, depending on the genre. Like, what if we're looking at an epistle? Does it help us t- to know um, the structure of a letter? Yeah, that's what I was thinking. I mean, how could it not? Right. How could it not? Well, I w- really, what I had in mind was a was a um, the plot structure of a of a you know a text from a biblical history, the story of Abraham and sacrificing Isaac on the mountain, or something like that. I mean, does that have? Does the fact that the exposition and the rising action of that story lead to a specific climactic moment that resolves an underlying conflict? You know, the kind of structural analysis that we would give to a work of literature. Does that kind of understanding of that story elucidate? the themes of the story. You mean, is it, is it, um, is it feasible to do that with a history in the same way that you would do it with a piece of fiction? Yeah. Yeah. Which is a way of asking this question. Does a biographer arrange his material in such a way to tell a compelling story? I think you have to answer yes, because each of the four gospels tells the story a little differently. Mm -hmm. Mm. Yeah. What are the implications of that, Emily? (laughs) Go there. (laughs) Well, Each uh, each author is emphasizing his own particular themes and ideas and looking at it from a different angle. Uh, the book of John is extremely personal and focuses on, on the love of Christ. Um, oh, I think we just lost Ian in the... No, you didn't no, lose oh, us. Okay, she no. just got to the end of what she knows about that topic. <laughs> no, no. Oh, I, I know at least one of them. Go there. But I'm not a Bible scholar. 
scholar. Perfectly oh, awesome. This. Go, Megan. So whereas John emphasizes the love of Christ, Mark presents Christ as the suffering servant, and Matthew comes from more of a Jewish perspective and offers Christ as the fulfillment of all of these prophecies. And then Luke, all I remember about the book of Luke is that he's a physician, and so it's very intellectual. Oh, yeah, Luke is the one who was not an eyewitness, but who writes to Theophilus in order to set the accounts in order mm. in a way that is um, cohesive, that's easily approached and understood in narrative form. Right. And so what you guys are suggesting is that those four authors arrange their source material, yeah. tell their story mm -hmm. in such a way as to make well, a thematic observation. Well, and Luke really... in particular, he, he's very upfront about it. I'm going, I, I wasn't an eyewitness, but I'm telling these stories. I'm putting these stories in order so that it's easy for you to see that Jesus is the son of man. Mm. Right. I think it's really striking too, because they're all telling exactly the same story mm -hmm. with the same scenes and everything. I mean, there are a couple different scenes, but it's the same man's life story. And they come at it from just such different perspectives that you come away with a whole new perception of Christ. Mm. Not, not um, contradictory perceptions, mm -hmm. but a well-rounded perception. Right of who he was, mm -hmm. who he is. I would argue that that is an essentially literary way to read those stories, mm -hmm. that it's the same technique that we use on Dickens and Shakespeare and Twain and Dostoevsky, mm -hmm. and that we don't do violence to the biblical text by doing it that way. But the same way that it works with Twain and Dickens and Dostoevsky, it's a way to actually read clearly, think clearly, understand clearly what's being said. Mm -hmm. And you're right to say that when we read, for example, the works of um, uh, Moses, or when we read the story of Abraham and the sacrifice of Isaac and that sort of thing, we're reading a biography written by Moses, right? according to tradition. right? And so Moses told the story in a particular way on purpose yeah. in order to accentuate the things that he believed were important. And um, the fact that he was inspired by God to do so should make us pay all the more attention. To which details he chose and yeah. what order he put them in. What did he include? Right. And why did he include it that way? I'm reminded of a, a towering literary work of the 20th century. It's a Hercule Poirot novel from Agatha Christie. <laughs> where um, Interesting segue. Yes, there, yeah, where Poirot says, that. now just listen, where Poirot says to Hastings, when Hastings says, well, Poirot, can't you remember what happened this morning? And Poirot says, ah, it's very interesting when you tell someone what happened to you this morning, because some details you leave in and other details you leave out. And doesn't <laughs> it tell us a lot about you to see which of those is which? Mm -hmm. Hmm. And he was obviously talking about a, you know, a cyanide poisoning or something like that. <laughs> but the truth is in an right. Old Testament story or any, any story in the Bible, obviously those are not the only details that went down in that story. The author is making yes, theological and spiritual decisions, but literary ones too, mm -hmm. in order to tell a compelling I story. That, I think that's the problem with trying to apply an extremely scientific analysis. People finding discrepancies in the text. Well, it's, it's not a scientific text. You can't treat it that way. Uh, but maybe, well, are we going out on a limb here? But maybe it is a literary text. Maybe they're all literary, even if some of them aren't scientific. Can we go there as a if Center we, for Lit crew? Can we go If we keep talking about this, the Center for Lit crew is going to alienate Christians. And no, that no. Would be a bad idea. I don't think so, because <laughs> just way. to clarify, we're not, saying, we're not saying that it's literary read fiction. No, the portions right. of the scriptures that were written to be fictional, for example, the parables, are fiction. 
their stories. But well, history tells the story, and it happens to be a true story. We're not we're not negating the truth of any of the historical accounts or stories in the Bible or the historical personalities that are um, that are told in biography in biographical form. Right. Um, by saying that we can understand those stories by structurally analyzing the way that the narrator told that story. We're just um, looking at ways to get inside the story itself and listen closely to the author of that story, who frankly was a man inspired by God. And an artist. Yeah. Someone crafting a literary story about Abraham Lincoln and including you know, certain details that are truthful that trying to do to bring out the spirit of the thing doesn't make the fact that he existed not true. Right. 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 Absolutely. And, 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 and to the point of our discussion today, the more skillfully he does that, the more powerful his thematic observation about Lincoln's life will be. And the, the more, the, the more effectively a reader reads that story taking into account the context and the literary devices and the structure of the story, the more clearly he's going to understand the point. Yes. Absolutely. And I think you have to, I mean, if, if you believe that, that man is a creature created by the living God who calls himself the living word, then everything that we do, literarily speaking, everything that we write, literarily speaking, is a copy, a copy of the original in large part. I mean, God is the original author. He's authored history and tropes and shadows and types and all those things. He came up with those things. And we just imitate when we use those ideas. Right. So there's, I mean, I think when you're reading the scriptures, it comes alive um, not, not by ignoring those tropes and shadows and the literary devices, but acknowledging that the person behind them, the author, ultimately is the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm inspiring a man to write skillfully in this way. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of food for thought. I wonder if we have done justice to that question that was put to us by the Bibliophiles listener. Perhaps some feedback on that question will be in order for those of you who have listened. Maybe you can send us an email, uh, respond to us via one of the forms on our website, and uh, let us know how this group musing on the question of biblical literature and the Bible as literature has landed in your mind and heart. It is all the time we have for today, and I do want to thank you all for joining us. Bibliophiles, I hope, is as much fun for you as it is for us, although I doubt it, because we have a ball. Let me uh, invite you to come and rate the podcast on iTunes, if you would be so kind. Let me also invite you to come by the Center for Lit website at www.centerforlit.com check out the other resources that we have for readers and teachers and thinkers of all stripes. It's been fun, my friends. Thanks for tuning in. Until we meet again, happy reading. Happy reading. Happy reading. Bibliophiles is a production of the Center for Lit Podcast Network. Find new episodes each month on the web at centerforlit.com where you'll discover dozens of resources to equip and inspire you to participate in the great conversation, including the Pelican Society, a membership program for folks who love the Center for Lit approach to all things literary. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Until next time, happy reading, everyone.